0: Welcome to this episode of the Veterinary Public Health Podcast. I'm Kate, with me is Nick, and we're going to be talking about pet food.
1: Yeah, it's a pretty interesting topic. Um, not really, not many people really think about pet food on a daily basis, but when you get looking into it, there's it's quite involved and there's uh, a lot of things that people don't really know about it.
0: So um, I guess one of the reasons why this is important is because there are a lot of pets in Australia and there will be lots of people listening to this podcast who've got a pet. There are more than 8.5 million pet cats and dogs in Australia and this doesn't include the feral population of these animals and it also doesn't include a range of other animals that people might keep as pets. And the pet food industry is pretty big as well with $183 million worth of pet food exported out of Australia in 2016 and far more than that that has remained in the country. Oh
1: far more and I mean the industry as a whole is worth what over seven billion dollars so um, it's really important to think about in terms of not only its environmental impact but uh, the animal welfare impact and what pet food has a part to play in that whole bigger picture So um, let's jump into it
0: yeah so in today's episode we're mainly going to be talking about food for cats and dogs for common kind of carnivorous or omnivorous household pets and not so much food for things like rabbits or chickens or guinea pigs it's going to be mainly about cats and dogs so maybe we'll start by talking about what's in a typical pet food
1: Mm. so i mean everyone's seen tins and um bags of kibble and the fresh rolls and things like that but uh essentially a lot of those have similar ingredients Uh, and they're broken down into a source of protein which could be a meat or a high protein legume Uh, a cereal grain unless it's specifically labeled as uh, grain free Uh, and so the grains are often like wheat barley and often corn is thrown into that as well Um, and then you've got your seasonal products like the winter vegetables that would be added like carrots.
0: Yeah, so most of these foods will, um, they'll include um, a meat, a grain product, and some vegetable. And often they will use things that are cheap or in season, or maybe byproducts of human food production, which is partly to reduce the cost of pet food, but also to decrease waste. There are some of the more expensive foods, if you go down the pet food aisle and you look at the labels, that might use the specific same ingredients year round, regardless of whether or not a particular vegetable, for example, is in season. Uh, and that will be evident on the label. There'll be labels that will say carrots, as opposed to labels that just say seasonal vegetables. Mm. And this can have an impact on the price.
1: Yeah, or it, they, might, they might say uh, salmon, and they'll have a picture of a salmon on the packet, and it'll say in the ingredients as the first ingredient, salmon and or other fish or fish meal. And that effectively leaves it open for the pet food company to be able to put as much or as little salmon as they want in it. It will have to have a little bit of salmon at least, but they can uh, have the majority of the fish part of that food as fish meal. Um, so it's a little bit misleading. Yeah. And, um that's sort of where we find our other companies where they do list those lab- those um, uh, products in the ingredients as percentages. That's part of what makes them so expensive. It's it's so prescriptive mm. for them.
0: I- I guess a lot of people might be surprised by this because I think I, I certainly would have thought as a consumer that if I was purchasing the same pet food year round that it would contain the same ingredients all of the time but that's not necessarily true <laughs> yeah, as people have nah. just now. <laughs> um and i guess though there is a flip side to having the some of the foods that use specific ingredients year-round in that yes they may be very nutritionally consistent and always contain the same things but there can be a cost associated with um as well as an environmental impact of having to import ingredients when they're out of season
1: yeah and i mean even if you think of when you have to add ingredients in you're looking at foods where they've undergone so much processing that a lot of those nutrients have been taken out of those foods and so they're added back in like vitamins and minerals so uh, in order to be nutritionally complete a lot of the processed foods that we do feed our pets have those added to them
0: Mm, so um maybe we can talk a bit now about how pet food is actually made
1: yeah so um basically for the meat component at least uh an abattoir will send off meat that they're not able to sell into the human market uh, to the pet food market so uh, it'll be all the different parts of the offal such as if they're not selling livers to the human market they might sell the livers to the pet food market for example so uh, things like the different body parts that aren't used for human consumption as well sometimes the head meat sometimes uh, the meat around the bones that's trimmed off, Um, that'll all go to a manufacturing plant and uh, it'll all get mixed together and what we call rendered.
0: So I think it's important to mention to people here that these meat byproducts that are not used for human processing still have to be safe in order to be able to be used for pet food. It's not as if everything that is deemed not for human consumption is unsafe, and then gets fed to pets. There are some things in the processing of animals that will be discarded and not used for either human or pet consumption. And then, of course, when animals are um, uh, when animals go to the abattoir, there will be some byproducts as well, like um, blood and bone meal that people might be familiar with for their gardens that are not used for food production at all.
1: Yeah, and I guess something important to say here also is. Things that are considered safe to eat, but are not aesthetically pleasing uh, in, the, in, in human society. So if there's a bruise or something on the meat, then that's not going to sell so well in the supermarket and still able to be sold in pet food where it's going to be minced up and uh, rendered, so made into a meal and boiled.
0: And this is why a lot of the um, the pet food that you buy doesn't necessarily have recognisable pieces of meat in it, particularly if <laughs> it is a dried kibble type of food because most of it is going to be these processed um, byproducts.
1: Yeah, and then you get all the uh, seasonal vegetables and stuff added in. Obviously, there's going to be some stabilisers in there, like uh, fat stabilisers so that everything doesn't get separated and... Um, then some preservatives so it can survive in the package, and then some vitamins and minerals to make it what we call uh, nutritionally balanced. But we'll we'll get to that.
0: Yeah, we'll get to that in a little bit. But uh, Essentially, that's what goes into making most of the commercial pet foods that you'll find on the shelves. So I think um, Nick, you might agree with me The part of this topic where we learned the most was when we were looking into the regulatory standards and oh. what governs pet food in Australia and what you're allowed to sell as pet food and the requirements for disclosing what's actually in that food. Yeah,
1: so juicy.
0: So um, we'll, we'll get through the boring stuff first and maybe talk about some of the actual documents that govern pet food regulation. And then we can talk about some of the interesting things that we learned along the way.
1: Yeah, well, I guess from a regulation point of view, uh, the Australian standard AS5812, say that five times fast, was um, <laughs> yeah developed in 2011 by representatives, representatives from the federal and state government, uh, the RSPCA, the Australian Veterinary Association and PFIAA, which is um, Pet Food Industry Association Australia. This standard is not a legal standard, it's a voluntary standard and even though it's a voluntary standard, 95% 95% of the industry or 95% by volume of the pet food sold in Australia abides by this standard, which is, which is pretty good.
0: Uh, the major caveat on this is that 95% by volume of the pet food sold in Australia complies with the standard, but it's very difficult for the consumer to know when they're in the pet food aisle, yeah. which of the foods do and don't comply with the standard. And there is a little bit of information that can help you work out whether or not your food is compliant, but it's not very transparent on the label of the food.
1: Yeah, and this is, as we said, not a legal standard. Um, obviously, some, or some people might know that all legal st- standards uh, you can actually access. It's free to access online for Australian standards. However, um, because this is an industry standard, you actually have to pay $116 to access it. So there goes your birthday present. We're we're
0: interested (laughs) in pet food, but we're not that interested (laughs) in pet food. So we haven't haven't read the entire standard document. But um, essentially the majority of pet food that is sold in Australia does comply with that standard. And there is some general information on the PFIAA website that kind of details what goes into that standard. But to read the fine print of it, you need to purchase access to the document.
1: Yeah. And and that uh, PFIA standard, international foods don't necessarily have to be a part of that either. They can they can choose to be a part of that program. However, um, the only from a legal point of view. Uh, the only regulations that they need to abide by would be the Biosecurity Act in 2015.
0: Oh, um, so you mean by imported pet foods rather than international food? Obviously, different countries will have different systems as to how they regulate their pet food. We're just giving the example of what the Australian standards are for pet food because that's where we live. But, um, yeah, in terms of imported food needs to meet minimum biosecurity standards but is not required to comply with this voluntary pet food quality standard Mm-mm.
1: i guess the other thing to mention on that point as well is once imported pet food has come into the country um, and is passed those biosecurity controls that's the uh, level of the involvement of the federal government after that the safety of the pet food is under the control of the states and territories so in order to have a national standard for pet food that is legally enforceable uh, at a federal level the states and territories would actually need to refer power to the commonwealth to regulate whether imported pet food is able to be regulated beyond those quarantine points um, which is pretty similar to the human food importing requirements so the commonwealth constitution doesn't actually provide any power to the commonwealth to engage in those kind of activities even though like we're talking about what less than 10% of the Australian pet food market is going to be imported pet food, but it's still a substantial amount. And most of the pet food industry, even though it's produced in Australia, they're actually internationally owned companies. So yeah, um, but a
0: lot of it is still locally made. Yeah. Um, So most of, most people, this won't apply to the pet food that they're generally buying.
1: No. And Um, the other important thing is about, pet meat isn't it what's what's the go with pet meat
0: so um, pet meat as a product is not allowed to be imported into australia due to some quarantine concerns and what we say when we mean pet meat is that rendered product that comes from the abattoir that has uh, combined and processed uh, the rejected cuts of meat that were not going to human consumption so the types of pet food that can be imported into australia will be a a completely processed pet food that is in a can or in a box or a bag and not the meat product to be able to make food here. So any pet food that's made in Australia will be made. The meat component, at the very least, will be Australian meat.
1: Mm, mm. And remembering that meat isn't necessarily just the muscle meat we're talking about, we're talking about all the viscera as well, so the organs.
0: Mm. So I think... Another obvious thing to talk about here is that if there's no kind of standard for the regulation of pet food, um, that people might assume that there would be problems sometimes with pet food in terms of safety. And most people would, would be familiar from human food safety recalls that there's a standardized process as to how um, the food is removed from the shelf at the supermarket and uh, people who might have purchased the food will be notified through a publicly available means that the food has been recalled for a safety concern um no nick you might be able to tell us a bit about that but i don't think that really exists for pet food is that right oh
1: certainly not so just as there's no national national system to actually legally enforce laws Upon pet food, there isn't actually a legal system to uh, force a company to say make a recall on unsafe food. So, in the veterinary industry, at least there's a program called PetFast. So all these fasts in the vet industry, I, I know, but uh, PetFast is a is a system to track health problems in dogs and cats that are suspected of being associated with pet food, uh, or treats or meat uh, that they've received. Um, and it's designed to sort of identify patterns so it's a bit of a rubric you go onto the petfast website and only vets can uh, log in and fill out that checklist and submit it to petfast so you have to be a vet and it, it, it provides a lot of useful information so
0: so, but in case we didn't say it enough times, you, you have to be a vet. So there's no, kind of, there's, there's no standardised food recall process like there is for humans. So um, this, do, this is one way in which we can pick up that there might be a, a health-related issue associated with a particular pet food.
1: Yeah, actually, there is one exception to that rule, I think. Therapeutic diets. So... Uh, When when we talk about therapeutic diets, therapeutic means drugs, so uh, diets that are medical diets, so uh, things like a renal diet or a, a metabolic diet or something like that, those diets, as they have drugs in them, are regulated by the APVMA, which is the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicals Authority medicines. So, so if
0: there was a problem with a therapeutic diet, then that would undergo a mandatory recall.
1: Yeah. yeah. But I mean, in, in in the rest of the food, obviously it's in the pet food manufacturer's interest to recall it. You don't want to have a bad name uh, and you do want to come across as quite proactive. But
0: yeah, I think yeah. In, in practice, that's probably less often what happens. Most of the food that needs to be recalled would be recalled, but it's less of a systematized process and it can take longer to pick up on problems than it might if there was a mandatory recall exactly Um, so there are some specific health problems that can be associated with particular pet foods we might talk about that
1: yeah so I mean with that whole recall thing part of what we try and what what the industry tries to do is tries to make the food as safe as possible I guess so uh, a lot of imported food was irradiated for biosecurity concerns. So that no longer exists anymore for cat food at least, um, because irradiation actually degrades the vitamin B1, the thiamine in the food. So there were cats that were getting thiamine deficiency. So now any irradiated food that is dog food has to be labeled must not be fed to cats.
0: And is that harmful to feed your dog irradiated food?
1: well dogs cope much better than cats do with that i personally haven't had any dogs present that are on international diets i mean we don't even know which uh, international dog foods are irradiated and which are heat treated or treated in any other way so i i wouldn't be able to tell you but i haven't had a dog present with a thiamine deficiency
0: mm. so the, the point is really that cats can be quite sensitive to thiamine deficiency and that irradiating food does tend to destroy the thiamine in the food so yeah that, that's this is an example of something that's been picked up as a problem that has actually led to a change in regulation
1: yeah and i mean another another example would be having uh, high levels of calcium in uh, the originally, uh, you'd think a Great Dane when it's growing requires all this calcium to make its bones nice and big and strong. But um, these giant breeds, they they actually need a little bit less calcium in their growing phase. And um, the pet food industry cottoned onto that pretty early on, and they looked like they had rickets uh, because because of these uh, concerns with high calcium diets and I mean it is in the pet food industry's interest to produce a good product uh, they don't want their the animals getting sick and so things like sulfites which are the preservatives used in most of the pet food industry in Australia they whilst they are bad for thiamin they add thiamin and they use a regulated amount of sulfites to be able to ensure that there's enough thiamin in the food especially for cats
0: So there are ways around some of these problems and um, these foods are treated and preserved in a certain way in order to make them have a long shelf life, but it does sometimes mean that we need to nutritionally analyse what's actually in the food and if any of that is affected by the preservatives and then Mm. add more, as in the case of thiamine.
1: And noting that uh, sulfites are a pretty commonly used preservative in the human food industry as well so it shouldn't be too much of a case of concern
0: yeah exactly it's not the preservative itself that were um that was the issue in this particular case it's the fact that it was causing a nutrient deficiency yeah so we could probably go on and on about all of the different health problems that might be associated (laughs) with what you feed your pet but that um, that could be a topic for another episode, maybe.
1: Yep.
0: Uh, in terms of other things to discuss in the way that pet food is produced and regulated and how you might know what you're buying from the shelf, we should talk about labels.
1: Yeah, oh, labels. Uh, so, labels are actually a state based uh, regulation in the industry. And so, the only state in Australia, or every state, has the bare minimum legislation, which is it has to say pet food only. And it has to have a picture of a dog's or, or a cat's head or body. And that's it. Yeah, depending <laughs> on the animal
0: that it's intended for. So that's that's a pretty minimum requirement, pet food only, and then a picture of a dog or a cat. Yeah, um, And the only other state that has any kind of formal labelling requirement is Queensland, which has a requirement for traceability purposes, but it's still... Th- that doesn't really add an awful lot more to the label in terms of being able to look at it and work out what's actually in that food and whether or not it's a good choice for your pet.
1: So beyond that, uh, nothing is actually legally enforceable and uh, the labels that we do see, uh, generally because th- those pet food companies have uh, signed up to being members of associations such as the Pet Food Industry Association, the PFIAA, Um, or the
0: equivalent in another country
1: yeah yeah or even international bodies as well so the the two big international bodies uh, are the european pet food industry and the association of american feed control officials these big international bodies do have uh, regulations if you want to say a member of them but broadly speaking when you look at uh, pet food on a shelf you'll see the ingredients listed if it's advertised as something so say it's advertised as chicken that needs to be at least 25 percent of the pet food so if it's in the first four ingredients it's going to make up at least 25 percent and it generally isn't the pure chicken mince it'll probably be a chicken meal or a meal of a sort uh, associated with the meat that's advertised.
0: Mm-hmm. So, some of these foods you might see will say complete and balanced on them. And in order to be able to print that on the food, they need to belong to one of these member organisations and to comply with their particular standards that outline what your food has to include to be called complete and balanced by complete we mean it has all of the nutrients that that animal needs and by balanced we mean it has those nutrients in the right proportions any foods that member companies produce that are not complete and balanced then have a requirement to be labeled as the product being intended for intermittent or supplemental feeding only which you'll probably find in small print on the back of the pack if you can't see either these completely balanced or supplemental feeding only labels on the pack it is likely that the food company that you're purchasing from is not a member of this organization
1: yeah and that's actually really important because these these organizations did do a lot of research and they did invest a lot of money and time uh part of that research was actually performed in australia the nutritional requirements for dogs and cats which was published in 2006 uh, was a bit of Australian research and a lot of these international companies did take that, those um, recommendations by veterinarians and veterinary nutritionists on board. So it, it, it was really good research and nothing's been incorporated in a legislative sense.
0: This is not to say that any food that is not labelled with these is necessarily bad for your pet. It's just very difficult to know how well balanced that food is yeah. because there's no, there's going to be no evidence on the can. Mm. And I mean, it when it isn't.
1: when you don't know how balanced the food is, and you're giving the same food, say say you for a matter of convenience, and you think your pet likes a particular food, and you don't know how balanced it is. If you give something that's slightly imbalanced for a very long period of time, you're going to get negative health outcomes, aren't you?
0: Yes, I think that leads nicely into having a bit of a discussion about what you do need to think about when you're choosing the right food for your pet. Mm. Uh, The first thing that a lot of people are probably aware of is the age of the pet. And if you look in the pet food aisle, you'll see that there are specific foods that will be targeted for kittens and for puppies and then there there might also be food in some brands that is available for senior or more elderly pets as well and these will have different proportions of the major nutrients that are appropriate to the life stage of the animal.
1: Mm. And then obviously there's the specific dietary requirements if it's a giant breed or a pregnant animal or a medicated diet such as um, a renal diet that I mentioned earlier.
0: Those are those therapeutic diets we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. You also need to think about the nutritional requirements of your individual pet, which will include some consideration of how active your pet is. And if you're you've got if you've got a particularly active pet they might require a little bit more food than a more inactive pet.
1: The the other major thing, and this is the bulk of it, isn't it, is personal preference. There's different things that you should think about when you think about your personal preference for pet food. Yeah,
0: when we when we came up with this episode, we came up with a little bit of a guide as to how you might decide. You know, kind of wade through some of the multitude of choices that there are for pet food, and it can be useful to decide which of the following factors you think are of the highest priority to you, and then look for foods that comply with that particular aspect that you're interested in, and then to narrow it down from there. Otherwise, there can just be way too much choice, and it's really overwhelming. Mm. So, you things you want to think about are the price. The animal welfare impact, any environmental considerations, and the transparency of the brand.
1: Hmm. I think they were the big four we came up with. and um, I mean, especially from an animal welfare perspective, people that have pets, they're they're obviously conscientious about animal welfare, not only for their own pet, but a lot of people don't think about the welfare of the animals that potentially are impacted by uh, the fact that you need to feed, feed your pet.
0: Yeah. So we do need to think about animal welfare when we are sourcing pet food. And if you are getting an Australian pet food, the meat component of that has been made here, then our abattoirs are held to a standard that you could be confident where the animals are being looked after appropriately during the processing.
1: Yeah. The other things to think about would be the environmental considerations, as we mentioned. So uh, things that come under that would be the food mileage. If it's come from overseas, how, how long Uh, has that uh, been in transit and how much carbon footprint has that had the packaging uh, what kind of packaging is it all in tiny little tins and so you're using a tin a day or multiple tins a day the production method so is it a dried food and uh, transporting dried food versus transporting wet food or even the production of dry food Uh, being quite energy intensive versus a raw food and the environmental impact of the food contents itself so rearing beef cattle or fishing for wild fish and having that byproduct of fish what's the environmental impact of that versus putting in some chicken that uh, has been read for human consumption and it's byproduct of the chicken industry you know what I mean yeah, yeah a lot
0: of these environmental considerations are probably things that lots of people are already thinking about when they choose the food that they eat and they're quite similar and the last thing on that list to think about was brand transparency which links into a lot of what we've talked about previously as to whether the brand subscribes to an organization that requires them to have um appropriate labeling and regulation of what's actually in the food and if you can look at the if you can look at the pack and you can have a reasonable idea of what's actually in the food then that can give you a little bit more confidence in the food that you've chosen
1: Mm. and i mean there's such a such a spectrum in in this brand transparency section because i mean there's regulation which says you need the bare minimum requirement to organizations that uh, go all out and have percentages of the ingredients that they're including, same as if it were a human label. Mm.
0: Another question would be whether or not you should feed your pet a varied diet. And I think. From what I understand, this can be a little bit contentious. And if you are yeah. feeding a food that is nutritionally balanced, complete and balanced on the label, then you probably don't need to vary the diet. But you can vary the diet if that's something that your pet is interested in, if it makes it easier for you, and it means that you are less likely to be susceptible to deficiencies of individual nutrients that might be a pr- problem with a particular food product mm. if you are using it all of the time. Yeah,
1: just don't let your pet train you in... Um always wanting the cheese and then, <laughs> and, and going on a three-day hunger strike because they will do that.
0: <laughs> no, and when we say giving your pet a varied diet, we mean feeding the pet appropriate pet foods and then treats in maybe smaller quantities and avoiding yeah. obvious no-nos that most people know about, like chocolate for dogs.
1: But I guess that, that also does bring us to whether we should purchase the food that's been produced convenient and nutritionally balanced and complete versus a home-cooked diet as well. So there's there's pros and cons for each.
0: Yeah, I think that it, it's pretty easy to do a home-cooked diet for a pet. If you go on Google, you'll find lots and lots of recipes of how to do it, but it can be very difficult to do it well, and it can be quite hard to know whether what you have provided for your pet is an appropriate and balanced diet, particularly when they're eating that all the time. If you think about cooking a meal for yourself, there are very few human meals that will be completely nutritionally balanced so it's very hard to make sure that food you cook at home for your pet has taken into account everything that the pet will require
1: yeah to be honest uh, a home-cooked diet's pretty tough I've seen people that do it well and good good work to those people that can do it well but it does take quite a bit of effort to make sure that you're getting that full spectrum for your pet Mm -hmm. and uh, sometimes having a bit of that um, nutritionally complete stuff added in may actually help um, because I mean, humans are able to produce more of their essential nutrients within ourselves as compared to, say, a cat, which needs to source it from its With diet. amino acids. yeah, I mean. yeah. yeah.
0: So that's not to say that you can't feed your pet the occasional home-cooked treat, but if you are using a nutritionally balanced purchased pet food for the majority of the pet's diet, then you can be fairly confident that you've given them an appropriate diet. Mm -hmm. Um, There are a lot of different commercial foods available out there. I think we are not going to in this episode be making any specific recommendations about which brands you should and shouldn't feed your pet just because we do not know enough about it to give that kind of advice but um do you have any comment nick on whether any anything in particular I should tell people to look for or not look for a particular brand
1: so as as we've just mentioned the things that you do want are a high protein diet that'll be better for both your cat and your dog in terms of their feeling of feeling full and it also uh ensure that especially in their older age They're able to get all the protein they need uh, because it's harder to maintain muscle mass as you grow older. And as you grow older, obviously, there's going to be those arthritis, the achy joints, and pains, and then you can get muscle wastage that way. So, making sure that the protein is high will reduce that risk of A, getting fat, and B, having that muscle wastage, which both together are really bad for arthritis. So,
0: And you will be able to see on the pet food packaging what percentage of protein is in the food. That's quite standard, is Yeah, that? that's
1: pretty standard.
0: Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things that have got a bit of a bad rep when maybe they shouldn't that we'd like to debunk here. Do you want to do that, Nick?
1: Yeah, so um especially from the environmental impact, people see the word meals uh, as in a meat meal in a really negative light
0: what what is a meat meal
1: so yeah a meat meal is like pretty much all the offal or the byproduct that's been minced up and partly rendered or boiled they're all the offcuts so to speak from an industry whether it be um, the bycatch in the fishing industry or the byproduct from abattoir and that meal is a good utilization of resources that otherwise would have literally gone to waste
0: mm, and it's not as though it's unsafe for the animal to eat and actually if you think about a lot of wild animals that are hunting then they would be eating a variety of animal products they're not they're not hunting and eating steak they're also eating bits of bone and fur and skin and other components of the prey that yeah, they have yeah a bit caught. of kidney yeah. Yeah. So um <laughs> yum, okay. <laughs> so another thing that often comes up is that people will complain that they've changed their pet over to a new food and the pet got a bit of diarrhea and that that means they think there's a problem with their pet not tolerating that particular food. Is that entirely true? Oh,
1: no. It, like same as with us. Like if we are if we introduce our kids to new foods and they get a bit of Diary. I mean, people are going to think we have children. But I, like, honestly, when when you go onto some new foods and your gut flora changes, your stools do change. And I mean, just we've got such a close relationship with our pets' poo. We're picking it up, and we just don't. We just don't like picking up loose poo. So we feel like it's a really bad thing. But if you had a bit of a soft serve, say, we're not going to be rushing to the hospital or rushing to the doctors and saying. Do I have something wrong with me? I mean, yes, gastro is a really uh, serious thing in animals. And oftentimes I do see it from people that do do home-cooked diets where they may not have cooked it thoroughly enough or we may have passed on some of our E. coli to, to the pets or vice versa. But um, certainly when you do change over to a new food, expect that there's going to be a transitioning in their guts.
0: Yeah, and obviously if your pet has really severe diarrhoea or they look otherwise unwell, that's a different situation. We're talking about that kind of transient mild diarrhoea that might happen with a new food, which is quite acceptable and expected.
1: And if and if there is blood in the poo, just see a vet.
0: Okay, sorry. <laughs> just had to
1: say that. M-
0: moving on, doing this episode gave us a lot of, It left us with a lot of questions about the pet food industry and things that could be done to improve the quality, the transparency of what's in the food and the sustainability of pet food as well. And we've got a few ideas. We'd be really interested to know if anybody in our audience has any ideas that we've not thought of here as to what we could do to improve pet food. I think that we've got quite a long way to go.
1: Yeah, most certainly. And, I mean, we did mention earlier about pet food labelling the percentage protein now from a quality perspective protein presented on the packet is normally what's called crude protein that's not always available protein for the pest digestive system to be able to access so if there was protein tied up with a whole lot of other nutrients that's really hard for the body to break down then that's not uh, entirely available for the body to digest or um It doesn't necessarily say the spectrum of amino acids that are present in that protein either. So, from a quality point of view, having on the label the available or availability of the nutrients in the pet food would would be a real help, I think
0: yeah so i guess this brings us back to something that we touched on earlier which is the transparency of the labeling of pet food and what's at a minimum requirement now as you've probably seen on pet food packaging is that there needs to be macronutrient proportions disclosed it'll say a certain percentage of protein certain percentage of fat of carbohydrate whatever but it would be nice to know within that protein you know what is crude protein and what is actually available protein or whether there is a representative sample of all these simple the essential amino acids within that protein. But it would be nice to have access to more detail about what specifically is in the food in terms of quantities of micronutrients and specific ingredients. And as we know, some foods do that now, but it's not a requirement.
1: Mm. That sort of leads on to the transparency as well with human food being completely traceable. I mean, technically, in the meat industry at least, food is pretty much traceable from the supermarket shelf down to almost the farm that you you got the bit of meat from. And that's not replicated in the pet food industry, unfortunately, which uh, can actually be used as a point of difference, so to speak. So being able to say our pet food our ingredients were entirely sourced from this region may actually guide uh, some consumers' choices as to if they wanted to buy locally entirely or whether they want they knew that certain ingredients were internationally sourced.
0: I don't know that this is just about a it'd be nice to know thing, but it's, it actually becomes important as well when you have problems with food or there's safety concerns or there's a potential infectious risk, and this is why it's... Uh, really key in the human meat industry because it means that you can if you've identified a particular batch of a product that's a problem you can work out exactly where that's come from and we can't Mm. really do that with pet food with the current regulation
1: Mm. and i mean that would be really good for the states being able to enforce recalls for example
0: yeah as we do with human food yeah
1: i guess going on with that transparency point most of, Did you even know that most of the pet food in Australia is owned by three parent companies?
0: Well, I know that now that we've done that <laughs> research for this podcast yeah. but it's not something that I would have known before. So even though when you're in the pet food store or in the supermarket, you might see... 20 or 30 different brands of pet food the majority of those brands will actually be owned by one of three parent companies Um, I don't think that that's something that most people are aware of I think that we probably think there are a lot more smaller independent brands out there than what there actually are
1: Mm, So by volume uh, Mars, which is US Nestle, which Nestle Purina, which is Swiss and the real pet food company, which is uh, Chinese they sell by volume 90% of the pet food sold in Australia, which is crazy.
0: Um, so there you go, do with that information what you will. But you can actually, if you, if you are interested, you can search and find out which companies own which of the subsidiary mm. brands of pet food. And another aspect to think about is the sustainability of food. Um, we can make pet food more sustainable by using local ingredients, using byproducts of human food production or other food that might go to waste which might include you know seconds in fruit and vegetables as well things that are smaller in size or maybe a deformed looking vegetable that wouldn't sell in the supermarket and actually a lot of these things that pet food industry already does pretty well a lot of pet food as we talked about is made of byproducts of human food consumption and from things that have maybe been overproduced and there's been a real bumper crop of corn and that Therefore, more corn will go into pet food, for example.
1: Mm. But I guess the other thing that we've got to be conscientious of is uh, the world's expanding. There's more people in the world and feeding all the people may actually require us to be quite a bit less selective with the types and cuts of meat that we eat. And so some things that historically have gone to pet food may not be going to pet food as much anymore. And with that means that the pet food industry would actually have it be having to source either uh, ingredients at a higher price or ingredients from a different source or ingredients from a novel source, so having to grow their own whatever it is. So uh, that, from a sustainability point of view, so it needs to be addressed uh, from f- future thinking perspective I think
0: mm, I, I would disagree with that one a little bit because I think in terms of human diets a lot of people are moving to a much more plant-based diet and actually we I think that we will see meat consumption in general fall um, I don't know whether or not this will be in proportion to population growth or whether there will be meat shortages that will impact pet food regardless but I guess this raises the topic of you know, humans moving to a more plant-based diet does have some health benefit as well as being more environmentally sustainable depending on the plants that you choose or where they are grown. But is a plant-based diet an option for pets?
1: Well, I mean, we get into that whole vegan diet It's a tricky one. Yeah. yeah. And can a vegan diet work in dogs? Possibly. In cats at this stage, it hasn't really been proven to work in my opinion. They are obligate carnivores, meaning that they can own, their digestive system is set up to only eat meat. Having said that, dogs and cats evolved to eat raw food and we're giving them cooked food and cooking food changes the nutrient availability and that nutrient profile. So maybe a plant-based diet or a lab-grown meat can be used for cats and then adding those supplemental nutrients in there but that also comes at the question of well where are we sourcing those vitamins and minerals from that we're we're adding into those pet foods uh, is it all coming from overseas and uh, what are the regulations around those so
0: so I guess the essence there of what you're trying to say is that theoretically it is possible to have a plant-based diet for your pet but it needs to be done in a way that is appropriately nutritionally balanced and there are a couple of factors there one is that for particularly for obligate carnivores like cats we probably don't have enough information on how we can formulate a diet that is appropriate for a cat that does not contain meat and also you have to think about from if we're looking at this from a sustainability perspective that by the time you do all of the supplementation and processing in order to make it a complete diet, it may not end up being more environmentally friendly. It's a little bit hard to know.
1: Exactly. So if anyone has any other ideas or any thoughts on the topic, we're we're open and happy to hear them. Essentially, what we're trying to get through in this podcast is there's a, a, a variety of things that we as consumers can be more conscientious about when we're making decisions regarding our pet food and we've outlined that we should probably try and consider not only the price but environmental sustainability, animal welfare practices and brand transparency and what implications each of those points has.
0: Yeah, right. I think that's a good point to end on for today's episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. As always, you can contact us via vphpodcast at gmail.com or you can find us on Instagram as well at vphpodcast.
1: Thanks, guys.